Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this is our first recorded episode back from the Christmas, New Year's Eve break. You're going to be getting this, you know, a little later in January. But this is our the first episode we're recording of the new year. So I, I have to ask, Julie, what did you get for Christmas? Oh! <gasps> Thank you for asking. I got an accordion. Whoa. A now, button accordion. Now what now what is a button accordion? Because with accordions I tend to picture like there's that little the little deal that you see hobos and monkeys playing. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the big honking like Weird Al Yankovic Polish grandfather model. Uh it's sort of between those two. Okay. Uh, cost wise too, by the way. <laughs> they, I'm telling you, this is crazy with accordions. They're either like they just go up super high. Uh, so, of course, the model I have is a reasonable dollar amount, um, but as a result, it's the button one, and it's actually simpler, and um, the button one has buttons instead of keyboards on one side, but it still has that delicious sound that it makes when it's, you know, um, exhaling and inhaling air. Oh. That's, oh, that's what I think. Cool. Now, do you have a history with, with this, or is this a new endeavor that you're setting out on? Uh, I've always been obsessed with them, and um, always wanted one, and my, my husband finally said, hey. Because it's one of those things I wasn't going to go out and buy for myself. Right. Yeah. But what does this mean for me? Yes. What does it mean for you? Okay. It means that um, not only do I need to learn how to do you know these great polka songs, mm-hmm. but I have to um, sit down with a book and learn how to do this. I need to use some self-control, some willpower. Right. And that's uh, at this time of year, that's on everyone's mind. Because 2013, New Year's, I mean, everybody's thinking, what am I going to do with my new year? How, what's going to be different this time? Um, you know, some people may be thinking, oh, well, can I have a little more of 2012? I knew where I stood in 2012. I knew what was going on. I just want to stick with that. Well, you can't. New year, new things going on. So we inevitably end up thinking about things we can change. What are we going to do mm-hmm. differently? And, uh, and, and ultimately, we have to face the question, do we have the, the, the stick with it? Do we have the willpower? Do we have the... The, the grit. The grit to really make it happen. Do I have the grit to polka? Yeah, and I have, I have a feeling you do. I think I think I think so too. Yeah, we'll um, see. You know, if if I get decent at it, maybe I'll play for you guys. That would be awesome. Like they, in two years. In two years. <laughs> well, now now everyone's going to be be wanting wanting it. They're going to write in and they're going to say, "When is Julie going to play the accordion on on the podcast?" I know, and you guys don't encourage me because I'll just do it every single podcast, <laughs> and you'll be like, Ugh, "Why?" Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is something I really want to do. And mm-hmm. so right there, there's some motivation, but it turns out that's not going to be enough. It's not. No. Because I need to bear down and figure out what willpower is and how I can game it. Right. And in order to do so, you need to look at willpower and, and try to get at the bottom of it, scratch at it. And, uh, one of the ways that we can do that is we can look toward the American Psychological Association. And they define willpower as the ability to delay gratification, resisting short-term temptations in order to meet long-term goals, the capacity to override an unwanted thought, feeling, or impulse. So clearly, if I'm trying to play, I cannot listen to my body if it says it has to get up and go use the restroom, right? Right. If that sounds reasonable, right? Yeah. Um, The ability to employ a cool cognitive system of behavior rather than a hot emotional system. So I can't, like, go crazy with the accordion if I'm angry and I'm not doing well and, like, smash it to smithereens, right? i got to yeah. stay the course. 
Um, and then uh, a limited resource capable of being depleted. So this is not something that I should probably undertake after a day of crunching numbers, making big decisions, um, being mentally fatigued. Yeah, this may remind some people of the whole uh, the whole idea of, of ego depletion and decision fatigue that we've touched on a number of times. And the and that the research into decision fatigue really stems from research into willpower and temptation. And and uh, and we'll get into more of that uh, as as we. Uh, as we move through this uh, this podcast, but uh, you know, at this time of year, I, f- I find like the, the easiest models that people tend to, to go to for understanding willpower. Of course, it comes to: Do I have the will to go out and do something I don't want to do? Exercise. Do I have the will to resist doing something I really want to do? Eat chocolate or junk food? I mean, right now, in in our break room, uh, somebody brought in a big honking box of. Like gourmet chocolates. Yeah, I think they're Harry's chocolates yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and I, I know exactly what they were doing. They're like, I must get rid of this. The temptation is too great for me to eat all of these. So they brought them into the break room, dumped them, and just let everyone have at it. But the thing about those chocolates, mm-hmm. I have to uh, at this point, is that they've probably been sitting there for six days. No, no, they've been sitting there two days. Only two days. Yeah. Okay. Sorry so, to tell you that because no one knows. Okay, because I, I considered having a bite, and then I thought, you know what? If it's just like the other stuff, it's been out for a while. Yeah. It's I actually covered saw in fly who poop. put them there, and I keep I keep sneaking them back into into his office. And, I, <laughs> and and I think he was just throwing them away at first, and then I started like mashing them into the keyboard a little, and then he yeah. has to like dig them out with his fingers, and by the end of it, he's so covered with chocolate, he just gives in to the temptation. I think, there you, you know? go. Yeah. But you know, a lot of this uh, this idea of like, of, especially with chocolate things things like chocolate, we've we've discussed this before. It's something that our body wants and our body needs, and in a simpler time, it would be harder to get that candy sugar rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we live in an age where you can pretty much eat all the sugar you can possibly stand. And uh, and then our bodies have to pay the price for that. So, temptation is is uh, we see it in other animals as we'll as we'll discuss. But there's a, there's something distinctly human about so much of this idea of temptation and willpower. About our, in a simple sense, our bodies wanting something that our mind knows we shouldn't have. Now we've discussed the body mind connection. Uh, in, in previous episodes. So I think we all know that it's a little more complicated than that. We're not just this brain creature living in this flesh body creature. If we look back at some of the philosophy of willpower and, and choice, uh, if you look back at the words of Plato, uh, Plato argued that uh, the human experience is one of constant struggle between the intellect and the body, between rationality and desire. So along those lines, true freedom is only available when willpower unchains us from bodily, emotional, instinctual slavery. So... Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, it's. I think it's one of those things that is the trade-off of having, um, you know, a highly complex brain, right? Yeah. Is that these are all all these sorts of things will present themselves uh, as temptations yeah. to us humans, probably more so than other species, right? Yeah. And what did Oscar Wilde say about temptation? What He's, did he say? He said, and this is from Dorian Gray, and this is a character in that book, a hedonistic character that shows up. Uh, says, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. So, There's a bit of truth to that, there though, is as we a bit find of truth. out. It's interesting, like the, the Platonic model and then this Oscar Wilde model, for lack of a better description. There's the idea that willpower is the victory of the mind over the body, and it's a very it's a winnable thing if you're smart enough and you're 
you have enough fortitude. And then there's this wild model where it's ultimately this hopeless battle. Like you can think, you may think you're going to defeat the chocolate. You may think you're going to start going to yoga or spin class uh, every uh, you know three days a week or whatever your your January first plan is. But wait, uh, by the end of January, you're going to be facing a different story. Now, this is jumping ahead a little bit about what we're going to discuss, but it would be interesting to look back at Plato's childhood and Oscar <laughs> Wilde's and see the amount of stability in each of their childhoods. Indeed. And whether or not it was a good predictor of their own ability to um, self-control. So, let's talk about willpower across species, because this is interesting. Yes. You know, as, as we mentioned, certainly humans have it more complex than any other creature, because we have this... This culture and these uh, these ideas about what we need to do, and we're we're more self conscious in a very real way. But we have performed experiments to see if if willpower is exerted elsewhere in the animal kingdom. So it turns out studies have shown that uh, that dogs can resist temptation, chimpanzees can distract themselves from sweets with other objects, which is particularly interesting because uh, some people do that. They try and it's like don't think about the chocolates in the break room. Instead, let's focus on work. Let's buckle yeah. down, or let's listen to some music, or I'm, you know, something to distract me from the fact that the temptation is there. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go and bring the chocolate to your desk because then it's going to be even harder. Yeah, mentally out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, also been found that like the dog dogs can resist uh, temptation with uh, a little extra glucose, and we're going to get into the glucose connection to all this as well. But but that's again something we've touched on when we've discussed uh, decision fatigue: the idea that you can take some glucose, and then that'll give you a boost that you need. Yeah, that's right, because, again, you've got a a finite amount of mental resources, Mm -hmm. and they are often taxed when uh, you are hungry and fatigued, and so giving yourself a shot of glucose is a nice way to bolster your self-control. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking of a a video game model for all of this, you know, where you're playing a video game, and maybe there's like a life meter that fills up and depletes a little as you're injured, Mm -hmm. and then there's maybe a stamina meter that uh, depletes as your character runs around in the game world. And ultimately, it, that's the way it, it is in the real world. You have these finite resources that you use throughout the day, be it physical energy or this emotional, intellectual energy, this ego, this cognitive load, and different things will take a notch out of it. So in the same way that your life depletes every time a goblin stabs you in the gut with a sword, every time you have to deal with a really lofty decision or small decision or just resisting the chocolate that's in the break room, it depletes your your willpower meter just a little more. And if that thing bottoms out, then you're eating chocolate. Well, and I thought it was interesting, too, um, in the article that you wrote, How Willpower Works, you talked about how there are different parts of the brain that respond to willpower and to temptation. And there's a, a couple of different parts of the brain. One is called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and this is just behind the forehead. Mm-hmm. What we see is that when people are choosing between sweets and health food, for instance, I believe this was a 2009 Caltech study that you talked about, um, those who held out against temptation were processing in this ventromedial prefrontal cortex, but they were also processing in something called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And it's thought that this dorsolateral prefrontal cortex allows the ventromedial prefrontal cortex to weigh both taste and health benefits at this very same time, as opposed to the test subjects who had low self-control, who were only making uh, value judgments with the help of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. So there's this idea that people can differ with self-control 
possibly because of this greater use of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Now, of course, we need more studies like this to really try to figure out whether or not these people are have just become more adept at exercising self-control and as a result they're using dorsolateral more or if they are inherently uh, more muscled up in that area. So let's talk a little bit about what it wears down. Again, the, think of the video game, think of the, the life meter, the stamina meter, and now think of these two other meters, cognitive load and ego depletion. So you have uh, cognitive capacity on one meter and then you have ego on the other. First, we're going to talk a little bit about cognitive capacity and cognitive load. All right, Cognitive capacity basically affects our ability to hold out against temptation. Uh, it's essential in working memory, which we use when resisting temptation, uh, but also it's something we use when we're, say, holding a string of numbers in our heads. And this is, this is where it gets really fascinating. There was a 1999 study from the University of, uh, of Iowa, specifically Professor Baba Schiff, and he found that people tasked with remembering a two-digit number held out better against temptation than people remembering a seven-digit number when tempted with chocolate cake. So, uh, so again, there, people are walking down a hall. Somebody comes out and says, all right, this is the number you need to remember. You remember the, the number 12. You, you're remembering the number, uh, you know, 700, no, wait, it would have to be a million, wouldn't it? A million and something, right? 7,009, Yeah, that sounds good. Six. you got to remember that. And then you, they walk a little further down the hallway. And then somebody comes out with a big chocolate cake. You know, uh, it's Cindy's birthday in the office. Here, have some cake. And then you have to com- continue. And then at the end of the hallway, see if you remember those numbers that were given to you. So the idea here is that if, uh, if you distract the brain with a more difficult task, memorizing seven instead of two, it becomes harder for the participant in the study to make a healthy food choice. You're having to hold seven numerals in your head. Your cognitive capacity is depleted enough to where that chocolate cake may just do you in. Whereas if you're only having to remember two, then your meter is less depleted, and therefore you may be able to take the the, the punch, take the hit of resisting that chocolate cake. So that's where I think ego depletion also comes in, because it's a nice sort of counterpart to this, yes. right? Uh, we've talked about this before. Roy F. Baumeister, he's a psychologist at Florida State University, and he's done quite a bit of work on ego depletion. And here's a pretty good example of how he proves its existence. He had uh, students sit down next to a plate of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Okay, so imagine the mm-hmm. smells wafting into your nose. Some were allowed to snack away, and others were ordered to abstain from the cookies. And afterward, both groups were asked to complete difficult puzzles. So it turns out that the students who had been forced to resist the cookies had so depleted their reserves of self-control in trying to do that, that when they were faced with this task, this puzzle, they, they quickly threw in the towel, whereas their uh, cookie-chomping counterparts were able to conserve their willpower and work on that puzzle. So, again, what you're seeing here is the finite mental resources and how to use them best. Yeah. And this, I, you know, I think this, this also gives me a lot of insight into to how I work. Like, I find... We have a fair, fairly nice teleworking policy mm-hmm. here at work, uh, which means you know we can work from home or mm-hmm. from a coffee shop or whatever. And I enjoy working from the actual house a little bit, but I can't do it all the time because there's just so many temptations I have to resist. Uh, and they're not all like bad. It's not just like should I drink alcohol at 9 a.m. I mean, there's something <laughs> like that, or should I just sleep all day? Not that kind of thing. But it's just, biscuit, isn't it? Well, there's that. There's like should I go check on the cat? And then and then in the afternoons when the cat is running wild, 
and, and that's also competing for my attention. Or, you know, temptations to to walk around, temptations to go ahead and have lunch a little early, mm-hmm. temptations to, to go and turn on the TV for a minute or something. You know, there's just all these things that I could do, and I'm having to resist all of them, and it kind of builds up. Um, where See, if I put myself in, a, in, say, the workspace here at work or mm-hmm. in a limited space like a coffee shop, then I can focus more. I'm the opposite. When I'm at work, it's harder for me to concentrate because there are people around, and I would like to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it takes more willpower for me to batten down the hatches uh-huh. and really focus, whereas if I'm working from home, then I just turn up the music um, really loud and then just sit there and focus and blaze through. Uh-huh. But, again, we're talking about distractions here. Yeah. To say nothing about the Internet, of course. I mean, that's but just the ever-present. Yeah, that comes with its own set of rules, right? Yeah. Um, all right, so how do you bolster it, right? How do you make willpower become more central to what you're trying to accomplish? There is something called closing the loop or the Zygarnik effect. Right. It's really interesting. Now, for those of you who are sci-fi fans and you caught the movie Looper, uh, there's closing the loop in that movie, which involves uh, killing your future self when your future self is sent back in time to your past self. It's kind of complicated, but also kind of cool. But the idea is that there is a loop that is closed and that that just closes the book on you as a time travel entwined hitman. And so this is a sort of similar thing. Kind of, yeah. The idea is that we create these these various open loops in our life. And the, the example that comes to mind instantly to me is that I'm telling somebody about a movie or a book that I really dig, and I'm like, hey, I'll bring in a copy and I'll let you borrow it. And then if I don't do that, if I don't bring in the copy of that book or that, that movie or whatever it happens to be, then that's always on my mind. I'm thinking, oh, I, I was going to bring in a copy of this novel for Matt to read, and I forgot to bring it. And so that's the first thing that enters my mind every time I see or think of that person. Well, and I've got a good example of my friend Maria. Uh, I finally wrote her back, um, but it's been a couple of months. She lives in Germany. She moved. So I don't have a chance to talk to her as often. Mm-hmm. Two months to to email her. The reason is because she writes these beautiful like 18th century missives that are like very intelligent and thoughtful. And so I always feel like oh, I really need to give her something back that's now, worth this it. Is email or is this? This is email. Okay. Although saying 18th century missives. Well, I was sounds, just wondering, yeah, how yeah. old school she was. No, no. But here's the thing: for the past two months, nearly every day, I've thought I've got to write Maria. I've got mm-hmm. to write Maria. And what we're talking about again is my brain trying to close the loop. My unconscious serving up thoughts to my conscious self to say, "Hey, you need to do this." In the Zygarnik effect, this closing the loop actually has its roots in the 1920s at the University of Germany. Uh, the reason uh, it's called the Zygarnik effect is because one of those students was very intrigued by this experience she and other students had when they went to a restaurant and there was a large group of them and the the waiter took their order but never wrote anything down and he delivered every single order to every single person. He matched the order to the face. Um, She went back later because she had left something behind or rather one of the students did and that waiter looked at her blankly and did not recognize or did not know what group she was talking about, had absolutely no memory, and she was amazed. And she said, well, how could you so quickly forget me but uh, have remembered all these detailed orders of this large group of people? And he said, oh, well, once I, you know, once the order is delivered, I don't have a memory of anything anymore that has huh. to do with that or so you. So he closed the loop he closed and he was the able loop. to clear out that uh, 
that bit of cognitive space. Yeah. So Bluma Zagarnik, the student, and her mentor said, okay, well, I wonder if human memory makes a distinction between finished and unfinished tasks. And so their research, as well as decades of other peer research, resulted in what they call the Zygarnik effect that says, yes, indeed, the unconscious mind is like a small child kind of, uh, you know, sitting there and tugging at the sleeve of the adult the, the conscious mm-hmm. saying, hey, you need to really pay attention to this. And so the idea is that self-control comes into play when the nagging thought is met with an action plan and you can then begin to close the loop. Right. So this is one of those things that in your own life, it's kind of you just have to figure out the action plan, the, the uh, step to take that will continue to close the loop. Because if you've got a lot of loops open, you know that that is, first of all, going to be depleting uh, your mental resources, right? Right. Um, and second of all, you have to have a very distinct action plan to try to close it in order to take that action. Yeah, I mean, it really drives home why a checklist, like checking things off of an, on a, like a daily checklist, it can be such a satisfying experience uh, to some people more than others. But like I, my, my wife is, uh, is someone who likes checklists. So, yeah. so she's mentioned before how it gives her pleasure to, to check things off. Because with each check, you are closing a loop, like emptying out a, a bag. It's just getting lighter and lighter as you finish up each little project. But here's where I think is, it's really interesting. Even with a checklist, you have to be super specific because what we're talking about here is psychology, right? Mm-hmm. So if you write down on your checklist, talk to Maria, write Maria, or consult with Maria, that's not specific enough. Email Maria. Or if you don't have her email address, get you know Maria's email address. So you have to tell your brain very specifically what to do or it wants to skip over those things. Hmm. Uh, there's a really interesting article about that in um, Mental Floss this month that talks about this, this ability to try to close that loop. And they used Drew Carey as an example because he, oh, really? yeah, yeah, he actually sought out um, experts in this and wanted to try to figure out how he could organize himself best. Huh. Well, and I imagine Mental Floss was bringing this up because of New Year's, because of resolutions, yeah. because when and because one of the things you that everyone is really piping uh, about is that you need to make a specific resolution. Don't say this is the year I get in shape. Well, how are you going to get in shape? And then you know, let's make some realistic, achievable goals towards that end. Not just I'm going to go to the gym more. Well, how many times a week are you going to go to the gym? Or what are you going to? What's your plan? What are you going to try and do? Like maybe the the plan is as simple as I'm going to go in this month and get a health evaluation. Or if you're a little more advanced than that, you could say, well, I'm definitely going to go to this spin class I've been going to, but I'm going to go three times a week like I know I should, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that old maxim of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. I've never heard that yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it yeah. um, because it's descriptive. It's just kind of depressing to me. Yeah, and plus you're going to run through the, the choice meats pretty fast and then you're just going to be eating like elephant elbow and gristle and that's no fun it's not the tail though it's pretty <laughs> popular these days um all right so enough of of food trends um what's another way to bolster it uh it well we talked about this a little bit with um the animals distracting yourself from the thing yes and this actually has its roots in a study called the marshmallow study mm-hmm very uh, famous study from the 1960s where psychologist Walter Mitchell devised an experiment using marshmallows, cookies, and pretzel sticks to test four-year-old self-control. Okay. Well, you know, we're talking a lot about marshmallows and sweets now, and I know there's chocolate in the break room. So before we get into that, 
anymore. I feel like we need to take a quick break. Uh-huh. And I need to go eat some chocolate. Doing. And then when we get back, we'll really get going with this idea of the childhood mind, childhood willpower versus the uh, seemingly insurmountable temptation that is the marshmallow. All right, we're back. So we were talking about marshmallows. We're talking about children. We're talking about temptation and willpower, about the depletable resource that is our willpower and uh, all the studies that have uh, gone into it. That's right. Little fluffy marshmallows. Um, This is the thing that uh, Walter Mischel, the psychologist in the 1960s, used to tempt kids, four-year-olds. He told the kids that they could either eat one treat right away or if they were willing to wait while he stepped out for a few minutes, they could have two treats when he returned. So this is just classic short-term payoff versus, well, not even long-term payoff, but slightly less short-term payoff. I can either eat one delicious marshmallow now or I can have two later. And this is a very simplistic model, but it matches up so well with everything else we do in our lives. It's like, can I have the short-term reward of not working out right now or can I have the long-term reward of being in better shape? The short-term reward of eating as much Chinese food as I can possibly stuff in my body or the, the long-term reward of not being dead. It's true, because if you think this is way too simplistic of an experiment, yes, just as you brought up, you know, think about that example, your four-year-old self and then your 40-year-old self right. um, is met with the same sort of challenges in a different form. Um, he found out, uh, the psychologist Walter Mitchell found out that those who buckled after just 30 seconds didn't have the same coping behavior as those kids who held out. And these high self-controllers use something called strategic allocation of attention. In other words, they sang songs, um, they untied and retied their shoelaces, they covered their eyes, they mm-hmm. played hide-and-seek with the treats on the table. Um, basically anything to try to divert their attention from the thing that they wanted. And when I think back to those studies on animals and self-control, the one about the chimpanzees really stands out because they were essentially doing the same thing. They had four adult chimpanzees. This is a 2007 study from uh, Georgia State University. And what they did is they had a candy dispenser that would um, just flow candy for like 30 seconds unless the chimpanzees put their hands in front of it. That would stop the flow. So they quickly learned that if they reached for it, that would stop and they wouldn't get as much candy. Mm-hmm. So... With one group of the chimps, they gave they gave them um, magazines and something like rubber tubes and a toothbrush. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then the other group, they didn't give them anything. And what they found is that the ones that were given these, what they called toys, these magazines, would flip through the magazines, look at the pictures. Uh, and, and by the way, Entertainment Weekly was one of the magazines. <laughs> also, some food and wine circulars from Atlanta restaurants. No, so this is not entirely intriguing stuff to a chimp. Right. But nonetheless, those are the ones that would help uh, hold out for something like 50% longer, which is pretty significant from 6 minutes to 12 minutes in trying to reach for that candy. Hmm. Well, you know, again, it's just the idea that every time you even glance at that slice of chocolate cake, you're depleting the willpower. Like it's just a little more willpower that you're having to use not to go eat it. So if you can not look at the chocolate cake and instead look at Entertainment Weekly, then all the better, unless you happen to run across a full-page ad for chocolate cake. 
Well, and then you're just toast. Yeah. We might as well reach for it. Um, so it just it brings up a lot of interesting questions about whether or not self-control is something that is innate or is it something that is uh, in our environment. And again, this marshmallow study has even more um, importance when you look at it in terms of our environment because in 2012, researchers at the University of Rochester took this study and they kind of turned it on its head, this marshmallow study, by looking at the relationship to the reward and the circumstances under which it was presented and how that could affect self-control in kids. And again, in, in kids, it's really important to do this with because we begin, we begin to see that children exercising self-control ages uh, three and four will sort of predict how they're going to react in their later years. And we'll talk more about that. Um, but I wanted to get sort of at the, the, um, the fluff of the marshmallow study here. Um, what they did is they had researchers bring out these uh, trays of, I think it was just like crayons or something, like a jar of crayons. Yes. And they said, okay, kid, um, I have like an awesome amount of crayons and markers in the other room, but if you can just hang on and not use these and wait till I get back, you will get the awesome set of crayons and markers. And so for half of the kids, they brought back the awesome crayons and markers, they got the reward because they sat there and they waited. They sat there and didn't color, didn't create art, and waited for better tools to be brought to them. Exactly. And then they started doing it. The other kids got punked. The researchers came back and said, oh, I couldn't find it. Yeah. Okay, so what are they doing here? They are setting up circumstances for this reliability or unreliability with the researcher. Yeah, there's a lesson here. One group is learning, hey, if you, when an adult tells you that he'll bring you, he or she will bring you more markers, if you don't use the ones you have... Listen to them, because we'll probably get more markers. And the other team is, like you said, they're getting burned. They're realizing, oh, man, adults are awful. They, did, they <laughs> I was supposed to get more. I could have been coloring this whole time. Instead of holding out for markers, they're going to never kind of come. This is awful. My innocence is shattered. Yeah. This is like Woody Allen kid, by the way, yeah. with though, this inner dialogue. Though I would say there's an important lesson there. It's like, don't, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to hold off on creating art until I'm really good at it, kind of a thing. But that's just me reading too much. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you don't hold off until you have better tools, work with the tools you have, and then you can get better tools. But anyway. Well, here's where the marshmallow comes into play, because now that they've set up these circumstances, the researchers bring out the marshmallow. Right. And they're rolling out the basic, the classic marshmallow test. Here's mm-hmm. one marshmallow, eat it now. And that's great, but if you can hold off eating this marshmallow, you'll get two marshmallows, and then you can eat those. Okay, so the kids got screwed in, in the art project experiment. They buckled after just three minutes while waiting for that second marshmallow. Yeah, because they already learned you can't trust these people. They're not going to bring you markers. Uh, they're probably not going to bring me that second marshmallow. I might as well eat this marshmallow now and then color a bunch of stuff. Okay. The with kids, my limited number of markers. That's right. Wow, these kids are, I mean, they're they're yeah. angry. The second set of kids, the ones that were rewarded and not punked, they waited for 12 minutes, four times longer. <laughs> okay, and the video of this is great because the kids are so, like, they want that marshmallow. It's sitting right in front of them. They're using their, like, 64 color sets that they've already won, and they're, like, they're painting pictures of marshmallows. Actually, at this point, they've, they've taken all of that away, oh, so it's it away. just okay. the marshmallow that they're staring down. <laughs> and their little feet are just going crazy on the ground, and they're just, mm-hmm. like, their knees are going up and down, and they're trying not to eat it. They're turning it upside down, looking at it, everything not to eat it. But this is really important because, as the study's lead author says, this is Celeste Kidd, she says, if you are used to getting things taken away from you, not waiting is the rational choice. 
and she said that it occurred to her that the marshmallow task might be correlated with something else that the child already knows, like having a stable environment. Mm. Okay, so this is really important because now it becomes this question of, well, how much does the environment have to do, how much does upbringing have to do with as opposed to genetics? Right. because, you know, someone like my husband has incredible self-control, and I've always thought of about it uh, in genetic terms. But who knows, as a kid, maybe he could always know that the reward was actually in sight. Right. As opposed to thinking, oh, well, I don't know, the, the carpet might be pulled out from under me again. Or he's a Jedi. Because the way you've described it, it sounds like he has, like, Jedi, like, turn it off abilities. He does. Yeah. He does, and he doesn't understand why like, other people it, can't. Like when you went things. vegetarian, wasn't that the thing where you were like, oh, I've made this, this, this choice, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. It's just, just going to be vegetables. That, and then we quit drinking like seven months ago, mm-hmm. and for him it was like, yeah, whatever. Just flip it off. Flip yeah, the yeah. switch. <laughs> so, okay, then there's the question of heredity, and now we don't have a lot of data on that. There's some information from uh, Edinburgh's uh, university study that looked at 800 sets of identical and non-identical twins to figure out how they differed. And they found that the identical twins were twice as likely as non-identical twins to share the same personality traits, suggesting that DNA might have had something to do uh, with the way that they go about their day. Lead researcher Professor Timothy Bates said that the biggest factor they found was self-control. And there was a big genetic difference in people's ability to restrain themselves and persist with things when they got difficult and react to challenges in a positive way. Now, that being said, um, again, you can't just look solely at genetics right. and say that that's the thing right there. That's the reason why a person has some, uh, self-control or doesn't. And I wanted to bring this up because there's a New York Times article called Genetics and Crime, and it talks about self-control and genetics. And Terry Moffitt, who's a behavioral scientist at Duke University, says that knowing something is inherited does not in any way tell us anything about whether changing the environment will improve it. For example, self-control is a lot like height. It varies widely in the human population and is highly heritable, but if effective interventions such as better nutrition is applied to the whole population, then everyone gets taller than the last generation. And I, I keep coming back to the whole mind-body connection. You know, you look at the, the platonic idea that it's it's intellect versus the, the base demands of the body. And uh, and then we look at how glucose, you know, the simple sugar that we find naturally in, in various plants, uh, how that energizes body and brain and, and gives us this extra boost of resolve. It's like the power up in the video game. It's like, oh, I'm about to be defeated by the chocolate cake, and then I <laughs> then I reach over here and get this uh, this glucose power up, and now I can resist it a little more or, or be you know remain more focused on the task at hand, that kind of thing. You, you fall into this this trap though of thinking of it in terms of like purely a, a body. Uh, type of situation, and mm-hmm. you end up reading that uh, quote from uh, from Oscar Wilde, and thinking, "Well, I guess he's right. You know, there's no defeating the chocolate cake in the long term. If you're locked in a room with it, it's going to wind up in your belly." But there is an interesting study that we ran across. This is from Stanford University, from Gregory M. Walton and Carol Dweck, who uh, we're going to discuss a little more here in a bit. Mm-hmm. They looked at how belief system plays into it, and uh, they found that it did play a vital role in how long willpower holds out against desserts and, uh, and decadence. So what they found in their study was that you had individuals who were very informed about how willpower supposedly works, and, the, and, and very much on board with the idea that there is a finite amount of it, that it will run out eventually, and then they're just going to have to eat that cake. And then they also uh, looked at people who didn't believe this, that this wasn't part of their view of the world and themselves, that adhered to an idea that, that willpower was infinite, that, there, that it would never run out, that it could never run out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
and you can sort of draw you know, various examples from your own life about what what who fits into what category, you know. But just think of like a I guess like a really positive person who's like, yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to quit smoking, and then they're they're done with it, you know, or or they think they're done with it. Uh, they that they believe that willpower is, and maybe this is some insight into the way your husband's mind works. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just doesn't see himself as having a finite amount of willpower. What's fascinating here, and what the, the researchers found out, is that uh, people who felt that their resolve was limitless were able to press on, wearied but relentless, against the chocolate cake or what have you. So, so that's a little, little. It's kind of like a mind over body situation there. It's interesting because Carol Dweck does. She does talk a lot about um, belief systems mm-hmm. shaping kids too, right? Um, so, when you think about a kid being labeled as something, right? as being smart or having a lot of willpower, you know, what does that do to them psychologically? Right. And I wanted to bring up a um, study of 1,000 babies born in 1972 in a New Zealand town. Again, Terry Moffitt talks about this. She reports that the less self-control a child displayed at three years of age, the more likely he or she was to commit a crime more than 30 years later. In fact, we're talking about 43% of the children who scored in the lowest fifth on self-control were later convicted of a crime versus wow. 13% of those who scored in the highest fifth. Um, so that's when you begin to wonder, like, what are the long-term ramifications of this? Can mm-hmm. it be gamed? How much of this is psychological and um, behavioral, right, from, from what you learn when you're growing up? And I also wanted to say that on the flip side, too, those, those kids who had a lot of self-control, they grew into adults with greater physical and mental health, fewer substance abuse problems. That's that's no surprise there. Fewer criminal convictions, better savings, behavior, and financial security. And um, they say that these, these patterns held even after researchers controlled for the children's socioeconomic status, home lives, and general intelligence. Hmm. Okay, so put all of that aside and then begin to think about Carol Dweck and her ideas about self-esteem and what she calls a self-esteem trap in education. Again, this is this labeling. A kid has self-control. A kid is smart. A kid is not smart. Because if you tell someone they have no self-control, tell them enough times they're going to believe it. And then how are you going to respond to the chocolate cake? It's kind of like, well, hi there, chocolate cake. We both know how this is going to end. Let's go ahead and do this now. And then... You eat the cake. Yeah, and she really she dwells more on the the smart label because that's something that has you know the self esteem uh, movement has been pretty strong since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. In other words, the education system said we just need kids to have better self esteem and then they'll feel better. But um, Carol Dweck kind of scratched at it and she said, "Hmm, I wonder if the effect of praise could actually have inverse conclusions here." In other Be- words, because the idea here is if you tell a child that they're they're not smart enough, then they'll believe that they're not smart. So. Then the, the, they'll work harder. Yeah. So the well, okay. Well, I shouldn't say that. Well, well, the, the original you, idea is that if you tell them that, that they're not smart too much, they'll believe it. And then the, there's this idea though that if you tell them you're smart, you encourage them, then you'll you'll bolster them, build them up. But then she's examining the question: Does this backfire after a point? Yes, because what's happening here is that the kids who are labeled as smart begin to think that they are innately smart, that they should be smart, that they, they don't, don't really to have study, to try. Right? Yeah. yeah, they don't have to exercise a lot of self-control or willpower in order to get something done. So what happens is that they begin to either pick the things that are easy and not a challenge, or um, they begin to think 
and or they began to think of themselves as as failures and as posers, yeah. right? And they feel like they're going to get uncovered at any moment. So what she's saying here is that it's empty praise. It's praise like, hey, you're smart, you can do good, you can do this, as opposed to sitting there and saying you have to have the effort. You have to have the self-control and you have to sit down and you have to do this. Because, and I won't go into the specifics of this because honestly we could do an entire episode mm-hmm. on just Carol Dweck's work on this one principle, um, but over and over again, what you see are those kids are failing and the kids that are labeled as smart. In fact, by age 12, if a kid gets uh, called out in class by a teacher, is is given um, an empty compliment or empty praise, mm-hmm. that kid thinks that they're not doing well huh. because they begin to learn that if they're being um, if someone's just giving them a bit of empty praise, they're being encouraged because they're not doing well. Yeah, they're just being patronized. It's just the idea. They're like, oh, you're, you're doing so well. And that doesn't work. You see right through that. Exactly. So this all ties back to self-control because when we're talking about uh, self-esteem, you get self-esteem by completing something, right, by exercising self-control and then seeing this challenge that you've met. That's where self-esteem comes into play. So it's a, it's pretty interesting because there are a lot of educators now who are starting to say that it's less about IQ. It's less about being smart or not being smart. It's more about the effort and the character. Well, hopefully all of this that we've discussed, it, it sort of, I feel like it maybe colors in, you know, again, this idea of the mind-body connection, that we're not just this brain, we're not just this body, but we're this, uh, this interconnected system. And so you can see willpower and temptation. You can see the battle on both sides. You can see, you can see where where it uh, happens in the mind. You can see where it is very much an affair of the body and some of the things we can do to, uh, to, to make it work in our, in our favor. So certainly if you're dealing with temptations uh, and, and you're trying to make your resolutions work, limit your exposure to the things that are tempting you, such as the chocolates in the break room, mm-hmm. what have you. And make your, your goals achievable and understandable and, and simple enough that you can actually check them off the list. Yeah, and just have a certain amount of, of understanding of the limitations of willpower. But also, you have to be careful not to fall back on it. You don't want to, to whatever extent you can fool yourself into thinking willpower is not a depletable resource. That's that's great, because if you're just going like, oh, well, willpower is going to run off at 3 p.m., that's kind of like making an appointment in your Outlook calendar to eat the chocolate cake at 3 p.m., because you're giving <laughs> yourself an out. You're giving yourself an excuse. So it's it's tricky. It's complex. But hopefully everyone has a little more uh, understanding about how it works now. Yeah, yeah. And if, if all those things failed, then just imagine those chimps thumbing through Entertainment Weekly doing mm-hmm. a better job than you are at not reaching for that chocolate cake. Yeah. Or, you know, if, if you're dealing with chocolate cake at work, collect pennies off the ground and, and nickels, you know, dirty change from the ground, bring them to work in a bag, and anytime you're, the, the chocolate cake is tempting you in the break room, just like stick one of those coins into it. And then you're like, then you've diseased it you don't have to worry about eating it. I mean, you might become a pariah with your coworkers, yeah. but hey, just go over it, over the top there. Just go ahead and squirt some ketchup all over that cake. Yeah. Or I guess you could throw it away. I mean, I don't you get into the the tricky area of break room etiquette, but uh, maybe that's the thing to, to do, you know? Because that things like it's like a weapon in there. Somebody has has dropped a bomb in the break room. Uh, a chocolatey, delicious bomb, and maybe you should just dispose of it. Let me ask you. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It. I was going to say, I was just thinking about a robot coming in. In fact, Arnie could do that. Our robot. What if you had a delicious baked good, like a chocolate cake, mm-hmm. but you wrote something on it like butt cake or cloaca cake? Ah. Do you think that that would prevent people from eating it? Oh. Like, what term would you have to put on there in order for someone not to eat it? 
this would I, I smell a video project here. We could we could pull this <laughs> off at work. To All work. right. What would you have to write on a cake? You could have three cakes. We could that could be the experiment. It may, may actually if someone else wants to try this before we get around to it, go for it. Like what would happen if you brought in three cakes? And on one you wrote something yeah, you know, just sort of normal, like "Happy Birthday, Susie" or something like that. And then in the next one, you wrote something a, a little gross. And then on the third one, you wrote something really gross. What would those cakes look like at the end of the day? Even though they're all the same cake, I don't know. We need to find out. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Arnie, let's call him over and let's do a few quick uh, listener mails. <laughs> All right, this one comes to us from our listener, Wesley, in New York. Wesley says, hey, guys, I just listened to your life hacking episode and wanted to share another life hack with you that I learned from a TED Talk. Matt Killingsworth gave a TED Talk about how we are less happy when our minds are wandering than when we are living in the moment. Since watching the talk, I've noticed that many of the, the times that I am feeling stressed out or unhappy, it is because I am thinking about things other than what is going on around me at that moment. Simply reminding myself to keep focused on the moment and not let my mind wander has noticeably improved my quality of life. Um, I think that that rings completely true with mm-hmm. a number of the things we've talked about on this podcast. You know, to whatever extent you can live in the moment, not to say you don't think about the past and you don't plan for the future, but to whatever extent you can put your mind in the present and not you know, worrying about the past and fretting about the future, then all the better. As Buck Brenneman from the documentary Buck says, you cannot be in two places at one time, right? Exactly. You cannot dwell in the past. Oh, I should also mention to you, since we were talking about that for gaming things for, for New Year's and, and posture, Amy Cuddy's talk on that, she had mentioned that the reason why she was interested in that is um, body posture is because MBA female students slightly underperformed um, concerning uh, their male counterparts. But what I failed to explain in that is that the reason they were underperforming is because a large part of their grade was dependent on class participation. And so what she was saying is, if you change their posture, could you get them to be more demonstrative? Could you get them to feel more confident in order to speak out? So I missed uh, talking about that uh, specifically, and I wanted to mention that. Cool. Uh, and just on another quick note about uh, some feedback on episodes, uh, we did those two episodes on shamanism and science and psychedelics. And uh, listener Kathy wrote in just to, wanted to, to underline the fact that not every shaman is into psychedelics. There are certainly other ways to reach some of these mental spaces that we discussed in those, in, in those episodes without the use of psychedelic substances, yeah. through the use of uh, meditation, through the use of yoga, through the use of music, or as Kathy points out, drumming. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, as a side note, we should stress that, yes, there are other means of reaching those, those places those places in the mind. All right, and let's uh, look at one last listener mail before we uh, close the bag here. This one comes to us from Richard, and Richard is responding to our Nutmeg episode, which recently published. Richard says, Hi, I'm Dutch-Canadian. It ain't much without the Dutch, he says. LOL. I love Nutmeg. I use it in drinks, coffee, and hamburger. I mix ground beef with ground pork. I put in salt, pepper, and a generous amount, not too much because it uh, becomes too sweet, of nutmeg. Nutmeg adds a delicious flavor to burgers. Kind of sweet, kind of spicy, but not really. Brings out the burger flavor. Love it. Been using nutmeg all my life. Great in eggnog, too. Happy holidays. Uh, this this was, of course, interesting because I we mentioned the, the, the history of, uh, of nutmeg and how fond of it the Dutch are, even mm-hmm. to this day. So I was curious if we had any Dutch listeners or listeners of Dutch descent, what their thoughts are on it. And sure enough, Here's a gentleman of Dutch uh, descent who loves himself some nutmeg. So that was that was uh, 
excellent to hear about. Plus, gave us a nice little quote there. Yeah. All right. Well, if uh, anyone else out there would like to reach out to us and share your thoughts on willpower, temptation, nutmeg, what have you, uh, you can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. On Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind, and... Uh, yeah, you can check us out there. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 